0: Well, good morning, church family. Uh, I'm Kevin Yancey, one of the elders here at IBC, and uh, I have the privilege to uh, read our text this morning out of Matthew 25, and we're going to be reading the first 13 verses this morning. So if you'd just follow along in the text, Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise, and five were foolish. And those who were foolish took their lamps, took no no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all of the virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell, And buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. May God bless the reading of his word.
1: I want to thank you, Kevin Yancey, for reading the text for us. And um, you know just to give you a, a quick reminder or the context in which we are continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew, You might recall, if you were with us last week, that the the exhortations that Jesus gave to us were kind of threefold in nature. He says, because I'm coming back at a time that is unknown and unexpected, he says he calls his people, he calls believers to be alert, one, to be ready, second, and thirdly, to be faithful. To be alert, to be ready, and to be faithful, and of course, in, in very a typical fashion, we see that Jesus doesn't just give exhortations but he also gives illustration. He, he speaks in parables to to better emphasize or to to further drive home the spiritual truths that he's trying to uh, to help people understand more fully. Now, just for the sake of reminder, because again, we, we sometimes hear the word parable, but don 't really know what a parable is, a parable is basically a fictitious story that jesus makes up but he uses common everyday circumstances uh common customs and traditions in order to drive home this spiritual truth now for us today in a kind of a 21st century western context parables can be difficult to understand because the 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 common everyday realities that jesus refers to may not be so common to us so they're common to Jesus' listeners, but they may not be common to us. So it is helpful for us to kind of dive into a little bit of a historical understanding and to understand, uh, to, to I guess, grasp a better uh, historical and cultural understanding of j- basically the times in life during Jesus' ministry. In this case... It's helpful to learn a little more about a first century Jewish wedding tradition. After all, they're quite different from the typical ceremony or wedding ceremony that you and I might envision or think of. You know, just this past week when I was thinking about just differences in wedding traditions, if you do just a quick Google search, I mean, basically every people group and every nation has their own wedding traditions. And they're all very different. I mean, even within the United States, we see that there are a lot of traditions depending on kind of your background, depending on uh, your family heritage or whatever it may be. But uh, a quick survey, I mean, as I looked and did my quick Google search was this. In India, for example, uh, it is very traditional for the the women to complement their jewelry by also getting henna tattoos. And so henna tattoos being, uh, they're not permanent, uh, but they stay around for a while. And we see that basically uh, they get this to kind of help beautify themselves for their wedding ceremony. We also see in Germany, for example, that uh, uh, the, the, both the bride and the groom, they actually had this tradition of sawing a log together, you know, kind of almost classic logger fashion. And they're sawing a, sawing a log together. And it, of course, that is actually to symbolize uh, kind of the combined strength of the married couple, especially when they face difficult times. In Norway, we see that their wedding cake is almost always uh, wrapped around a bottle of champagne in its center. In Fiji, we see that a whale's tooth is given to the father of the bride before the man can ask permission to marry his daughter. In China, it's very accustomed to have a tea ceremony. Again, tea was a a bringing together. And so in China, tea together is extremely important. In Sweden, Brides don't even wear a veil. Of course, not many people do today, even in the Western culture now. But they don't wear a veil, but they wear a kind of a crown of flowers. And, and of course, the, the father actually places a silver coin in the bride's left shoe, and the mother places a gold coin in the, the bride's right shoe, symbolizing hope and prosperity. The point I'm getting at is this. I mean, we could go on and on about many illustrations or examples, but there are all kinds of traditions for weddings, depending on the people group you're considering or the nation you're observing. And really, the Jewish people are no exception, especially first century Jews. They had their wedding traditions as well. And really, to to better understand a traditional first century Jewish wedding, we can understand it in three parts. A Jewish wedding was kind of broken up into three parts, the first part being kind of the engagement period. Now, the engagement period uh, was different than how we might envision or how we understand an engagement period. In this, during this stage or this period, the fathers of both the soon-to-be bride and the groom would basically would, be, would kind of arrange the marriage contract And then the soon-to-be bride, as well as the groom, uh, really had little say in the matter. They had little involvement in this arrangement. It was between the fathers. That's what this engagement period was. Now, I know that some of you listening right now may be listening to this going, I'm so thankful that that is not what takes place, at least in my cultural custom, right? I'm so glad that my dad isn't the one ultimately deciding who I'm going to marry, However, for thousands of years, many many cultures and, and people groups have done this and it's actually worked very well. However, the second part, be after the engagement period between the fathers, uh, is what's called the betrothal period. Now, this is the period that is much like our engagement period today, except it's almost a combination of an hour engagement period as well as kind of the wedding vows. In other words, in this betrothal period, both the soon to be bride and the groom come together and they exchange vows. And uh, this is where they would officially be considered married to one another. In fact, it could not be separated unless through formal divorce. Now this betrothal period however uh, they would not actually live together. So even though they would exchange vows even though they were considered officially formally married legally and spiritually they would not actually live together. They would not be doing life together yet. Within this betrothal period the groom would now leave and he would basically be getting his household ready. He would be preparing his home until he was able or um, the time was right in order to bring the bride back. And so sometimes this betrothal period between the vows and actually consummating the marriage and living together could be a matter of months, even up to a year. So the, the bride is waiting in this kind of waiting time, this period for an unknown amount of time when the groom was ready to come and finally or officially receive his wife. And now we get to the third stage of, the, of, the, of this tradition, and that is the, the stage of the wedding feast. This is when everyone in the community got involved. The festivities would, would last uh, as long as up to a week, but it all started, this is an important point here, it did not begin in other words the, the the groom would not come until the father said it is time The father initiated everything. He started it all. And when the father says, it's time, go, then the groom would actually take his groomsmen along with him and he would go to his bride's house. And that's where she would be waiting along with her bride's maids. And they would grab them and they would parade through the streets and and they would declare that their wedding feast was about to begin. And of course, at the end of the feast, The friend of the bridegroom, usually the best man, would place the hand of the bride into the hand of the groom, and it was then that the couple would be left alone for the first time. This is the first time they were left alone, and they would consummate their marriage. And from that point on, the married couple would live together till the end of their days. In our text this morning, Jesus is referring to this third stage of a traditional Jewish wedding. He's referring to this, this, this tradition that everybody knew and understood so that his listeners might understand a very important spiritual truth, specifically the importance of being ready when he returns. As we learned last week, you might recall that the readiness that Jesus is referring to is a readiness of being saved before he comes back. It's a a readiness of already being prepared, uh, ready for immediate use. Of course, the question is, why is it so critical to be ready in this way. Why is it so important for people to be absolutely assured and confident that they are, in fact, right with God before Jesus comes back? Well, as Jesus says, because he's coming back at a time that is unknown. In other words, We need to be in a state of readiness because we don't know when he's coming. Much like the virgins don't know when the groom is going to come and even the groom doesn't know until his father said, is it his time? And it could happen in the middle of the night. In fact, often it did happen in the middle of the night. And the bride and the bridesmaids were called, They they were expected to be ready and ready to leave at a moment's notice. The same way Jesus is coming back at a moment's notice at a time that is unknown, in a way that is sudden and unexpected for us. And the reason why it's important that we are ready before this happens, because we don't know when, but before it happens, is because when He comes back, there is no longer a chance for a change of heart. There's no longer an opportunity to receive the gift of salvation. That is all now gone. And so we see in this parable of the Ten virgins or the Ten Bridesmaids that it, it it emphasizes the importance of what Jesus exhorted all people to be ready now of course, like every parable it 's helpful to identify the the kind of the who and the what each character represents. So let me just kind of break down a keep uh, to explain or make connect the parallel between this parable and reality first of all the kingdom of heaven that jesus refers to in this parable actually is literally it refers to the kingdom that has been inaugurated uh, the kingdom that has begun by the first coming of jesus matthew chapter 3 john the baptist says this repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand matthew chapter 4 it says from that time on jesus began to preach saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. and Matthew 5-7, through as we know the Sermon on the Mount, these are all the values that are consistent with the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the whole life and ministry of Jesus was to announce the coming of His kingdom. The ten virgins or the ten v- bridesmaids that are in this parable refer to professing believers. These all represent people who claim to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian. And the bridegroom, as is oftentimes the case in Scripture, represents or refers to Jesus Christ. Of course, Jesus, as the, as the Messianic Son, he is often pictured as the bridegroom, and we as Christians, his followers, the church in fact, are the bride of Christ. Listen to what it says in Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. One day the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and asked him, Why don't your disciples fast like we do and the Pharisees do? And Jesus replied, Do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Again, Jesus uses these, these kind of wedding or marriage uh, verbiage, kind of the verbiage of wedding and marriage to identify that like he is the groom and, and we are the bride. We also see that this marriage feast that is represented in this parable refers to the future marriage feast of the Lamb. In Revelation 19, we get this picture from the Apostle John when he says this, Let us be glad and rejoice, and let us give honor to Him, for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and His bride has prepared herself. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Again, this is the, the, the culmination of all things. This is the, the consummation of all things. This is the end of all things. Evil has been eradicated or is on the verge of being once and for all eradicated. And Jesus is king. He's already king, but he will be fully recognized as king and as Lord and as God. This is when the bride of Christ, the church, all true followers of Jesus, will be presented to King Jesus and who will reign with him forever. The question is what does this all mean? I mean, I've given some indication to it that the kind of overall overall arching theme is the exhortation to be ready, but what are some of these components? What are some of the details within this parable really getting at? Well, I think there are three significant observations. The first being That the bridegroom being delayed describes the waiting period that followers of Jesus experience until his second coming. Let me just say that again. The, the, the bridegroom being delayed, remember that betrothal period could last months, it could last for an unknown period of time. The bridegroom being delayed describes the waiting period that you and I, as all followers of Jesus, are experiencing until the second coming of Jesus. Now this waiting period is often what we, re- what we refer to as the last days. The irony, however, these last days is that We've been in the last days since Jesus ascended into heaven. In fact, every generation of people has thought that they were in the last days. The Thessalonian church thought they were in the last days because everything that was happening to them, everything they endured, all the hardships, all indicated we must be in the last days. This is what was promised would happen in the last days. And yet Paul exhorts them, hey, live your lives faithfully with the full awareness. It could be, but you don't know. We've been in these last days, and so because we've been in the last days for so long, it can be tempting for us to think that we're not really in the last days. I mean, last days in our minds is like, okay, it's almost done. But it's almost done for thousands of years, so we can kind of get complacent. It's easy to become lethargic. It's easy to kind of to get wrapped up in so many other things because it doesn't seem like it's really the last days. And therefore, it's understandable why it seems like the return of Jesus is delayed. But I appreciate what Peter says in Second Peter 3. He gives kind of an explanation to how God views time and why he seems delayed. In 2 Peter 3, 8, 9, Peter says this, A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really slow about His promise, as some people think. No, He is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. In other words, we, we get kind of a twofold explanation here. First of all, we see how God views time. In other words, God is outside of time and space. He's both at the end as well as the, at the beginning. That's why he's the alpha and the omega. He's not bound by time like you and I are. We live in real time, linear time, one second after another, but God is not limited in that way. And so a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. It doesn't really matter. It's kind of relevant or irrelevant. But secondly, we see that there's a reason why God is delayed, at least delayed from our perspective. He's delayed or He's slow to return because He desires that none would perish. If you think about it this way, if God were to come back now, that would mean other people would be lost to eternal judgment. Or think about it in in a much more personal way. If you're a follower of Jesus, what if Jesus had come back a thousand years ago? That would mean you wouldn't even exist and have no eternal conscious reality in the presence of King Jesus. So God isn't delayed. He's not slow. He's not behind. He's not procrastinating. No, God is very much on time. Seems slow to us, but He is very much on time and His grace and His mercy are on displayed in his delay. So we see that the bridegroom being delayed really really kind of describes the waiting period that you and I and all believers have been in between his first coming and his second coming. But secondly, we see that the bridegroom coming at midnight describes the timing and the manner in which Jesus will one day come back. In other words, as I've said over and again, his return will be both sudden and unexpected. Sudden as it's going to happen very quickly and unexpected because we don't know when that will in fact take place. As I've said before, traditionally the bride and the bridesmaids, they had to be, kind of, they had to be ready always, not knowing when the father would ultimately send his son, the groom, to come get his bride. He did not, she didn't know, so she had to be in a constant state of readiness for whenever that happened, day or night. And as this describes the return of Jesus, we see that it will be both in the, in the same way, a very similar way, sudden and unexpected. As Matthew 24 describes, as, a, as, a, as lightning flashes in the east and shines in the west, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. But thirdly, we also make this observation, and this is where it gets much more personal. We see that there are five bridesmaids that were ready when the groom returned. And in the same way, we see there are five bridesmaids that were ready. It really describes professing Christians who are ready for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. There were ten bridesmaids total, but only five that were actually ready. There were 10 bridesmaids but only 5 were described as wise. 10 bridesmaids but only 5 had enough oil. 10 bridesmaids but only 5 that were prepared. 10 bridesmaids but only 5 that were let into the wedding feast. 10 bridesmaids but only 5 that were truly saved. They all looked the same. They all, they all uh, were invited to the wedding feast. Everything was normal. No one would have known the difference except for when the groom came. That's when the distinction was made. That's when we saw there was a difference between five bridesmaids who were prepared and five bridesmaids who were unprepared. They all looked on the surface the exact same, they dressed the same, they had the same invitation, they waited for a while, but then it showed that they were not actually ready. And of course the point that Jesus is making here is readiness is in a reference to salvation. It shows that there were five that looked religious but were not actually saved. They played the religious part. They were probably no doubt busy with religious duty, very much part of everything for the most part, but something was critically wrong that they were not actually saved. On the surface, everything seemed the same between all the bridesmaids, but they were not the same. Just this morning, actually, before I came in to, to preach this sermon, I was talking to uh, our head sound guy, Roger, and he was at, we were talking about two different sets of headphones. In fact, I even grabbed them for the sake of illustration right now. We have two sets of headphones and at first glance, you would look at these headphones and go, they look the same. They're both black. They both got the nice, soft, squishy things that fit around your ears. They both keep your ears warm and they both, pr- they both allow you to hear uh, the sound. But they're actually very different. This set of headphones is a cheap knockoff. This is the real deal. This, you can hear some distorted sound, but not very clearly. This, the sound is crisp and enjoyable to the ear. At the surface, they all seem the same. But when you experience it, you discover they're not actually the same at all. Again, the point that I'm trying to drive home, the point that Jesus actually drives home is that these virgins all look the same. They were all uh, on the surface uh, very similar, but they were not. And as this relates to you and as this relates to me, I believe that the question that you and I are left with is this. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Again, readiness is to be in a position of already being prepared, ready for immediate use, not caught off guard or not surprised in an unexpected or um, caught off guard or surprised in an unprepared way. Are you already saved to eternal life before Jesus returns? Are you ready to meet Christ when he comes back? Because when Jesus returns, the invitation for eternal life will be gone. The chance to turn to Jesus and escape eternal judgment will no longer be available. And this is a sobering warning for us all. Just listen very clearly, brothers and sisters. A sobering warning, warning for us all because the unfortunate reality, according to Scripture, is that many who say they are Christian, many who profess faith in Jesus Christ, many who think that they are already right with God are actually not right with God, are actually lost. The most lost person is not the obvious pagan. The most lost person is the one who thinks they're saved. They're doing all the right things when in fact everything that they're doing is in vain. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 15 when he quotes Isaiah 29. He says, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Remember that what John says you are a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You have the appearance of purity, but you are actually dead on the inside. You have the appearance of life and godliness, but you are actually dead. Dead man's bones. And this is a description that we all must seriously evaluate. Maybe asking questions like, Does this describe me? Am I, am I a person that's only giving God lip service, but my heart is not inclined? My affections are not really for God. Perhaps my heart is actually far from God. I've played the part for years but I really don't love Jesus. You see, your assurance of salvation, your assurance of being ready cannot depend on what you did earlier in life. Your assurance of salvation cannot depend on just having a spiritual experience at some past moment. Your assurance of salvation cannot depend on whether you responded to a, a formal invitation at some point in time in life. It cannot depend on just growing up in a Christian home, being familiar with godly or biblical truths. It cannot, be, it cannot be depend on just praying a prayer or whether you used to love Jesus. No, the question that we must all come to, to grips with is this, are you trusting Jesus Today? Are you trusting Jesus right now? Yes, you might might have been genuine in the past, and and this doesn't necessarily. We're not necessarily talking about losing salvation. That's not what we're going at right now. The question is: Have you even ever been saved in the first place? Are you trusting Jesus today? Are you ready today? Is your oil lamp filled today? Is your salvation genuine today? Paul exhorts in 2 Corinthians 13 when he says, Examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or you do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. It's interesting that when John writes the the letter to 1 John, he says in verse John 5, I write these things to you so that you believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know your name, that you may know you have eternal life. John is saying, I want you to know and this is how you can know. This is the evidence that kind of points to a genuine salvation. This is, the, the, this is the, the characteristics that define and describe someone who's truly saved, someone whose name is truly in the book of life. Perhaps we need to ask this question or settle this question in our mind. What does it mean to be genuinely saved? Well, again, through our study of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives a number of descriptions. I'll just give you a handful to, to drive the point home. In Matthew 4:17, Jesus says, "Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand," is, is, is near. Matthew 7:21, "Not everyone who calls to me, "Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of my Father in heaven will enter." Matthew 12.50, anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We see a few descriptions here. Let me just summarize that here very, very briefly. A summary of genuine salvation can be understood in this way. First of all, it is a confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul says this in Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess your sins, oh excuse me, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So, Part of salvation, part of assuring a a true salvation is that you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Remember what we learned, Antichrist will deny this, but those who are truly saved will say, no, Jesus is not just some other random guy. He's not just a good teacher. He's just not a great, someone worth listening to. He is Lord and he is God. Secondly, however, that doesn't save you in its entirety. Yes, you must confess right doctrine. You must confess right theology, but now it's a matter of the heart as well. We must also repent. Remember what we just read about in some of these verses. Repent. Why? Repent of your sins and turn to God because the kingdom of heaven is near. Repentance, without going into exhaustive detail right now, but we've we've discussed this, we 've grappled with this before. Let me just summarize it very quickly for us. Repentance involves a confession of sin, meaning you are acknowledging that you are in fact sinful, but repentance also moves uh, involves a sorrow over your sin it 's not just. Understanding that, yes, I am sinning. You can say that very stoically. I'm a sinner. Yes, I understand that. But it's also a sorrow over sin. You feel distraught over your sin. You feel anguish because you actually violated God's uh, eternal and divine commands. But thirdly, and this is a critical part of our repentance, you can confess and you can feel sorrow, but that doesn't mean you actually repented. Confession, yes, Sorrow over, yes, but repentance, thirdly and most importantly, involves a change of life. This is where the rubber meets the road, right? What you truly believe, uh, the actual condition of your heart is reflected in the way you live so a change of life, in other words, when our re- in our repentance, everything about us changes. Our priorities, our values, the way we view sin and righteousness, uh, what we say yes and no to, our opinions, our politics, our direction in life, everything about us, everything we experience is influenced by a heart of repentance that is no longer conformed to our former life, but it is now conformed to our new life because we have a new heart, because we have new affections, because we are now living for and serving Jesus as Lord. To repent then is, a, is to really experience a radical change of heart and will that is conformed to the will of God. And when we do this, It in turn causes us to change in our behavior and our lifestyle. So genuine salvation, yes, involves confession that Jesus is Lord. Secondly, involves a genuine repentance, not just confession that you're a sinner, but a change of life. And of course, we're all in this process of sanctification. So that doesn't mean that you've arrived. It doesn't mean that you won't still sin. But you ought to see a pattern of growth. And that brings us to our third point. It means to follow. Follow in the biblical sense means to obey. That was Jesus' final command in Matthew 28. We'll get to that in a couple months. To obey. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded. Following Jesus means to obey Jesus. As Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you in Luke 6? Remember in Matthew 7, only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. So, IBC family, if Jesus were to come back today, would you be ready? Are your actions, are your choices, are your thoughts, is your attitude all consistent with one who expects Jesus to return today? One commentator gave personal reflection to this, and I thought it was very appropriate to share with you. He says, My wife and I made a commitment that we don't ever want to say, if only. If only we had taken care of our health more. If only we had spent more time with our kids. If only we had been more disciplined to pay off our debts. If only we had not allowed that relationship quirk to pull us apart. The more we take care of those if-onlys, the more we are prepared to meet Jesus. It kind of begs the question, doesn't it? Are you taking care of the if-onlys in your life? I believe that if you are, then you will be able to anticipate the return of Jesus Christ with both joy and confidence. You will anticipate in a good way, in a healthy way. But if you're not, then there won't be a joyful anticipation. It will be a fearful anticipation. And it is also cause for you to get right with God and with one another. And I pray that before, before you sign off, that you would take time to reflect, to take honest assessment. First of all, assuring that I know that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I know that I'm his, a son, a daughter of the King. And here's why I know. And then even as a believer, I'm going to not live with a, a, a lifestyle of regret, but I'm going to take care of the if-onlys because I want to be ready today. I want to be ready right now. I pray this is true for all of us.